The United Church of God believes and teaches that human beings are created in the image of God and that human beings have the potential to become partakers of the divine nature. And that is to share in or to participate in the properties um, and or characteristics of God. And that is the title for the message this afternoon, Partakers of the Divine Nature. Now, based on what is found in Scripture, we teach that God made humanity, that's you and me and every one of us, out of flesh. That is why we hear and use the phrase flesh and blood so much, which means material Substance, material substance, atoms, molecules, and it gets more complex, but you know, that's basically what we're talking about material stuff. In a sense, the same stuff that rocks and trees are made out of. But flesh and blood beings are alive, unlike a rock. Flesh and blood beings are alive because God has breathed into them life. God has breathed life into them. However, flesh and blood beings are mortal. And this is a concept that I can't emphasize enough because it is something that is horribly misunderstood by the world at large. It's an important scriptural teaching and understanding. They do not have an immortal soul. They do not live on forever. So it struck me, and I've, I've, I think about it a lot, we are flesh and blood, and we die, which means that the flesh decays and it returns to dust, as the scriptures say, which is just another way we might say it, you know, make it sound more scientific nowadays by saying something like the body then breaks down into the atoms and the molecules and the elements from which it's made. But really, it means the same thing you return to the dust. That immortal life that uh, religious people assume that they already have is not built in. It is not a built-in feature of flesh and blood life. No, it is not. God's word tells us that everlasting life may be given, it may be given to human beings by God. That is the important truth that we're going to really look at a little more closely today. And he gives this to human beings through his grace, through his benevolence, his goodwill, if you will, but only under terms and conditions. Terms and conditions. God has terms and conditions. And we spend a lot of time talking about the terms and conditions. We're not going to really focus on those today, those terms and conditions by which God decides and makes his decision about what he's going to do with each and every one of us are expressed in scripture. So we're not at a loss. We, we know what God expects. Now scripture shows, if you think back to human beings and who and what we are, shows that Adam and Eve, and therefore I put it to you all humanity, were presented with a choice. Either 
eternal life, which comes through obedience to God and the receipt of the Holy Spirit, or to go from that temporary flesh and blood life that they have and that you have and that I have into nothing, which comes through disobedience. Those are the options placed before them. And we know that that receipt of the Holy Spirit that comes along with obedience is very, very important because it is the means by which everlasting life becomes part of us. And that Spirit is something that God gives to those who obey Him. Go to Acts 5, verse 32. Buried away in the midst of a number of other things, it says, we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, which God has given to those who obey Him. Those who obey Him. Now that first man and woman, Adam, Eve, they gave in to temptation to disobey God. And as a result, they were, and all subsequent humanity, you, me, have been cut off, have been cut off from free access to the tree of life, and therefore unrestricted access to this great thing, everlasting life. That tree was there in the garden, and... Uh, I believe that it's synonymous, means the same thing as receiving the Holy Spirit of God, which is that power of eternal life within us. However, at present, we find ourselves in a different situation. We do not have that easy, ready access to the tree of life because of bad choices. They made their bad choices, but each and every one of us have also made our own bad choices. Because of bad choices, flesh and blood, life, which is you and me, inevitably winds down. It winds down, and then it stops. And it returns to lifeless material. That's our inevitable end and destiny. It does not inevitably move on to some other form of life on a spiritual plane, unless God intervenes. Without God's intervention, that's what we can expect. That's all we can expect. And the scriptures are full of God's plan, intention, and promises to intervene. And gladly, we know about that. God's word also talks to us and gives us information about what is possible for human beings. What is, what is out there? What are we hoping for? What is this promise? What is this hope? What are we working for? What are we striving for? What are we living our lives before God with a hope of? What is possible for human beings? We also read in Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27, I think we did that last week. And Genesis 1, 26, 27, verses 26 and 27 tell us that human beings, that human beings are created in the image of God. 
man and woman. God created them. He said, let us create them in our image. You could also look at Genesis 5, verse 2, which says the same thing, in case you think, well, he's pinning too much on one single scripture. Well, there's another one. It says it twice in the same section of scripture. And this is of paramount importance. We looked at it previously. It's placed right up front in the Bible. God says, you are created in his own image. It's there in the very first chapter of Scripture as a point of emphasis. This is something very, very important for each and every one of us to um, hold on to, latch on to, and I think think about. What does that mean? What does it not mean? Now, the Old Testament writings, the old writings, and we looked at Genesis in particular, okay, but the Old Testament writings establish what I'm going to call a foundation of knowledge about what human beings are, builds this foundation. And we learned, you know, we're flesh and blood. We learned that we're created by God. We learned that we're created in God's image. Okay. The New Testament writings, they take that foundation and they build upon it. And it's through the New Testament teachings, the New Testament writings, which come from Jesus himself, which come to us through the church, that we understand the potential of what human beings can become. It's there in the Old Testament, but only because I think we have the hindsight of having read the New Testament and having, having it been explicitly pointed out to us. And not only do we get a really good look at what is possible for human beings, we also are reminded of what must happen to make that possibility a reality. And what we must do to make that happen is pretty much the same as it was in the Old Testament writings. Obey the will of God. But we'll get there. We'll, we'll circle back to that a little bit. Go with me to 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And I'd like to read uh, through the chapter 3, verse 2. I think it's a kind of a bad break there. It breaks up a thought that really ought to be together by breaking it into two separate portions of chapters there. So we're at John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And here's what it says. Now, dear children, John's writing this to fellow members in the church of God. Dear children, continue in him, continue in God, your walk with God, so that when he appears... We may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is because it did not or does not know him. But dear friends, now we are children of God. Here's the part I want you to really zoom in on. Take this home. Think about it. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. 
But we know that when Christ appears, when Christ returns, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. There's an awful lot of teaching in that short section of scripture. Let's unpack a little bit of what's, what's in there. Now, it's very, very common, very common, perhaps a little less common now as the world becomes more um, material-oriented, less like spiritual. People really kind of think God is an old-fashioned idea um, or one they don't want to think about. But it, it is still very common for people to say things like, we are all children of God. You've heard stuff like that, I'm sure, right? Oh, everybody, you know, we're all children of God, meaning that we are brought into existence by God the Creator. You know, that's good. But Scripture tells us a lot more than that when it comes to the concept of children of God. This is one of those, those verses. What are we learning in this verse? What are we learning in this verse? This is one of those ones that uh, you can take and you can think about for quite a while. One thing we learn in this section that the one who does what is right is the one who is born of God. There's something right off the bat. Um, so there's a separation because that implies that some people don't do what is right. And they're not the children of God. Am I right? There's a separation. There's a certain degree of conditionality about it. Okay? There's some factors that feed into whether someone is considered a child of God. Okay? Uh, the one who does what is right is the one born of God. So logically, that means there are some who are not born of God. What else do we learn in the scripture? Okay, another thing we learn, that everything that the children of God will become, that potential, uh, I characterize it as what is possible. So everything that is possible, everything that, that we can become, is not yet known in the sense that we haven't achieved or accomplished it in the flesh, thankfully. <laughs> Thankfully, there's more to look forward to. As you get older, you'll understand even more. It has not been realized in the flesh and blood life that we now live. But I think there's also an aspect of it that is conceptual, thinking about what's possible. That is another thing we learn in here. Because right after that phrase, John writes, we will become like him. There's a lot in that simple little phrase just right there. We will become like him. Wow. We'll dig in on that a little bit more. Another thing we learned from this scripture, though, is that only when Christ returns will we experience and understand the fullness of what it means to be a child of God. So it's an event that happens. One last thing I, we can dig out of this scripture that we just read is that knowing this, and this is, the, this is your moral reason why, this is your uh, 
your uh, action takeaway, okay? Knowing this info, having this hope, knowing what's possible, or at least being able to think about it in a biblical way, should lead us to pursue good moral behavior. As it says, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. What it's saying is, knowing what you know should inspire you and move you to pursue, follow a good moral life based on biblical directives. Go with me to Romans 8, verse 29. Romans 8, verse 29 through 30 says, For those God knew in advance, he also planned in advance that they be conformed to the image of his Son, foreknew, predestined, that he might be the first among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Without getting bogged down into the pointless and futile discussions about predestination and stuff like that, see me if you want to talk some more about it, what it's saying to you is that it has always been God's purpose and his plan to move human beings, that means you and me, from what they are now to a form of being that is like the resurrected Jesus Christ. That has always been God's plan, including in that a means to pay the penalty for their sins. And that goes back to, you know, why we got cut off in the first place. Their sins so that they might be justified, which means declared innocent. Salvation. Salvation through atonement, through the sacrifice of Christ to pay for sins, is not a tactical decision that God made on the fly based on ever-changing conditions. That's not what we're looking at here, such as, oh, humanity's unexpected choice to disobey. It is not a, the scenario is not that God looked at it and said, uh-oh, they sinned. Oh, what are we going to do now? I guess we better, have, we better have a plan here to deal with this sin. No, that is not the way it is. Scripture tells us that God has always known and knew in advance how it was going to play out. And this has always been his plan. Go to Hebrews 2, verse 6. Hebrews 2. Hebrews, the whole book of Hebrews is just so pivotal. You've got to know it and know it well. But uh, we've talked about that before. Let's just focus in here, though, on uh, Hebrews 2, verse 6. We've been reading this just a little bit lately. Uh, there's a quotation there of Psalm 8, which you know contemplates, wow, mankind is so, uh, is so, like, why did you even make mankind? And it's from the psalm. You can read that. We read it actually quite a bit. But it says in verse 8, okay, in putting everything under them, because the psalm says you crown them with honor and the plan is to put everything in, under their feet. It says, okay, in putting everything under them, under people, God left nothing that is not subject to them. You will inherit all things. Yet, at present, right now, we 
do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus. We do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death, death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters, children, to glory. So bringing people, human beings, to glory is what this is all about. And it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, could make the pioneer of their salvation. And that is Jesus, the pioneer, the author of salvation, perfect through what he suffered. What are we learning here? The resurrected Jesus Christ gives us a demonstration. He's like a demo. <laughs> he gives us a demonstration of the possibilities for human life. What can humans move on to? And he walked through this step by step and gave us a demonstration of a human life resurrected from dead flesh to a glorious state of being. I know there's more to what Jesus did, and there's plenty of ways to look at it, but that is very, very much a part of what he did and accomplished. That's definitely what Hebrews 2 is focusing on. This is what we see. We, we know about this potential for human beings, like we read in the psalm, but we see now what Jesus has gone through, and it's a demonstration of what is possible. We humans have the potential to share this glory with him. That's another thing that it's saying there. Bringing many sons and daughters to glory. Go to John 17. John 17, verse 1 through 5. Let's talk a little bit about glory. So Jesus prays. This is sometime after he's done the last Passover with the disciples and says this. He's praying to God the Father and says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, speaking of himself, so that your Son may glorify you. And in that way, you know, kind of show what, what God's doing, the glory of what he's doing. For you granted him authority over all people that they might, that he might give eternal life to all those who you've given him. And now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. So one of the things that we learn about this glory when it's related to Jesus Christ, is that the resurrection glory of Jesus Christ, which we read about in Hebrews chapter 2, is a return to the glory that he had from eternity. Go to John chapter 1. Who, what, where, what was Jesus before all this? What is he returning to? 
John chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. In the beginning was the Word. That is Jesus Christ. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was with God in the beginning. Now drop down to verse 14. It says, that Word became flesh. And there's your tie-in. This is Jesus we're talking about. That word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So again, that resurrection glory that Jesus refers to there in John 17, return me, to, you know, looking forward to getting back to the glory that I had with you before this all started. And that glory that is spoken of in Hebrews 2, which is to be the possibility for all those brothers. You know, Jesus is the firstborn among many, all those brothers and sisters. That glory can be likened to the glory that he had before he even became flesh and blood. Wow. Okay, well, a little more. Second Peter 1, verse 4. Second Peter 1, verse 4. Perhaps I should back up to verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. And through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, through them, through these instructions, these conditions, these understanding, understandings, I guess, through these, you may participate in the divine nature. You may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. And that's where I came up with the title for this message today, Partakers of the Divine Nature. Wow. Nature, looking up nature is another interesting word study. I'll do my best to kind of um, fill it in here a little bit. But it's saying that the glory that we shall have together with Christ can also be expressed as being partakers of the divine nature, which means partaking of the, um, what I would call, innate properties of God. You know, what, what, what makes God what he is? And the scriptures say, that's what's out there for you. Okay. Now look, at this point, at this point, critics of the church of God Say, you've taken it too far. You've gone too far. Your teaching of Scripture makes yourself equals with God. You're blasphemers. You're heretics. I ask you to consider this. With all this that's said, and I believe that we have looked at Scriptures that say we have this to look forward to, but at this same time, it is important to remember that we are still subject and always will be subject to God's authority. Go to Philippians 2. And this is a very important point, which is, um, you know, partly why God makes such a point of teaching us to learn to accept authority and to learn to live under authority and have a proper and right attitude towards it. In uh, Philippians 2, we read this, I think, last week. It says about Jesus, 
coming in the flesh, it says, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, something to be grabbed onto and held onto. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus had all the qualities of God, or Godness, however you want to phrase it. Yet, here's what he does. He moves from his divine glory to live among us in the flesh. Then, he moves back into his divine glory. I realize that's a gross simplification of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but that's for the, today's purposes, what is happening. And he does this to show us the pattern, the pattern for human potential. And in this way, as we read in, in, in Hebrews 2, he is the author, he is the pioneer of salvation and the firstborn among many. But at the same time in this scripture, what else are we learning about it? At the same time, we're learning that in all this, as he goes through all this, to teach you, to teach me, he voluntarily puts himself in subjection to the Father, taking the form of a servant. And as the scriptures end off here, all things are under him. Now, you know, we've, we've read a number of scriptures that tell us about the tremendous potential that there is for human beings to share in the glory of the resurrected Christ. Wow, that's, that's very cool. But this verse, the section of verses that we just read in Philippians 2, and many other verses, which I could refer to, but I'm going to just leave it at this one for the time being, because I think that's a whole message on its own. But many other verses tell us that we will also be in subjection to Christ. So in that glorified state, when we're looking forward to all oh, that amazing potential that's out there for us, we are still subject to Christ. Your resurrection is not a resurrection to, uh, well, now I can do whatever I want. That's not what God's promising. You will be subject to Christ, who is in turn subject to the Father. And in this way, I think you can say, no, the teaching of the Scripture which the church of God draws out and tries to present, does not put us or make us equal to God because we are always and always teach that we are subject to God's authority. Now at the time when Christ returns and we are made like him, we are brought into the family. We're brought into the family as the bride of Christ. Another whole message on its own. 
Hopefully you know the scriptures well enough that I can just say that and you go, yeah, he's right. We are brought into the family of God as the bride of Christ. The bride of the son. Okay. And as such, we are subject to his authority. And we gain insight into this. God's baked it into the cake. He's given us a way of wrapping our mind around this through our own human marriages. And we looked at that again in Ephesians 5. It's a great mystery, a great understanding, as Paul said, when he's speaking of our being subject to Christ. And that's how that understanding helps us make all this discussion of what's possible for humans work. In a human marriage, we, we learn good lessons. We learn, you know, God's decreed in the flesh that a, a woman, the wife, is under the authority of her husband. It's a living lesson that we, we walk our way through. Another thing, though, that we learn from our, our human marriages, I'd like to draw out, I haven't drawn out over the course of these messages, is this, second point about human marriage. A, a man, and a woman as well, does not, a man does not marry a horse, or a bird, or a catfish. He marries one who is of the same kind as him, who is of the same nature as him, does he not? To do otherwise is a perversion. People, I mean, people are willing to go into perversion, but... The truth of the matter, for anyone who has a sound mind and a sound outlook, is that a man does not marry a horse, a woman does not marry a fish. They marry one who is of the same kind, same nature, as they are. As Adam said of the woman, he said, she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Yeah, there's, there's differences between men and women, but... We are the same kind. If you need any clarification on that, see me afterwards. And this is just another way that the family model and the living lessons that we walk our way through explain our submission to the authority of Christ, who is the husband to the wife. And that same model explains Christ's own submission to the Father. And... It also gives us insight into what it means to be of the same nature, yet differentiated. Let's talk a little bit about the divine nature. It's subtitled, Partakers of the Divine Nature. The nature of God is what we're talking about, the divine nature. And let's, let's just muse on this a little bit, okay? So if we're going to be like him, and we've read a number of scriptures that say that, we started off in 1 John, we shall be like him, to share in his glory, to be partakers of the divine nature. What does that mean? What does it mean? If we, if we say that means that we're to be loving, um, merciful, just, etc., I think that's, that's easy enough for people to wrap their minds around. Okay, merciful, loving, just, yep. Sort of, you know, like attitudes, outlooks, things like that. But doesn't being like him mean more than that as well? 
doesn't it also imply other aspects of existence? I know it's starting to sound a little metaphysical, but other aspects of existence, such as not being limited in space and time. Or how about knowing all things? Or how about limitless in what we're able to do? Aren't those qualities of God? Aren't those what it would mean to be like God? And that, you know, that last little bit there, that's, that's beginning to sound a lot like saying we're equal to God again, isn't it? If I say I'm limitless, nothing can stop me now. But if I'm limited, limitless, if I'm limitless, if you're limitless in what you can do, we are still subject to Christ who is in turn subject to the Father. And that means that you, me, him, her, will not do anything that is not in accordance with the will of the Father. So you can do anything, but you're not going to do everything. Now, getting back to the moral aspect of it. Again, here, whether or not you or I am willing to work within those parameters is what God is assessing right now. What he wants to know. Go to 1 Corinthians 15. Excellent uh, chapter to know and to know well. Verse 35 Paul is answering questions here. He's kind of like doing a Q&A, if you will. And he says, okay, some people ask, maybe there were some folks in his congregation who asked this, or maybe he was just meaning it in a more rhetorical sense. But some people will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have? Or what kind of body will they come in? And we're going to just hit some highlights here. But Paul answers the question. The first thing he says is basically... That's a silly question. <laughs> it's, the translation, I think, is just it's how foolish, which sounds a little bit more like a put-down. But I think he's saying, well, that, that's a silly question. Uh, you'll be composed of spirit, just as God is spirit. Read, you know, the whole chapter, it's, it's deep, worth pondering, thinking about knowing and knowing well, but that's his answer. He says, you'll be composed of spirit, as God is composed of spirit. You're not going to be composed of Flesh and blood, and atoms, molecules, dust to the ground. Now drop down to verse 44 with me. And just plucking a few things out of his overall comments on this, he says, it, that being the body, the natural body, the flesh and blood body, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. And if there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. He was made of the dust of the ground, etc., etc. The last Adam, that's a reference to Christ, of course, is a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. Atoms, molecules, however you like to spin it. The second man, Christ, is of heaven. Spirit. 
God is spirit. So Paul uses the analogy of a seed, and he develops it in the other verses more fully, but he uses the analogy of a seed that's stuck in the ground and then grows into something different. And in the same way, he's saying we start in the flesh, which is temporary, and we move on to spirit, which is permanent. Wow. We are raised to life in the likeness and the nature of Christ. Drop down to verse 50, and it says, I declare to you, brothers, sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So listen, I'm telling you a mystery. I'm opening up some understanding here to you. We will not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. For the imperishable must clothe itself, sorry, but the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with the immortal. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. So when this change comes, we receive the fullness of that salvation. You know, the scriptures talk about salvation. People like to talk about salvation. What is salvation? Salvation is salvation from death. The inevitability of this death. The process that we're talking about here, though, the process that we're talking about is not an automatic process. It is not automatic. Now, most religious people, okay, most religious people, most religious traditions believe that all human beings automatically pass from this temporary physical flesh and blood state to an ongoing spiritual state. I'm putting it in very broad terms so that I can bring in a lot of different faiths and traditions. But that's basically what people believe, that we go from the flesh to some ongoing spiritual state which is without end. And after death, after death, the spirit simply carries on without being trapped in a physical body anymore. This is generally how people look at things. Then, then, Comes the condition, okay? Because people say, well, then what each one of those persons, now spirits, free from their body, experiences while in that spiritual state is conditional and it's based on how they lived in the flesh. Some will experience only bliss, some will experience only misery. In very broad, non-specific terms, that's what most people believe. The scriptures, however, teach something different. They teach that human beings, you and me, do not automatically pass from this temporary state, this flesh and blood state that we are in, to a spiritual state that is without end. Believe it or not, that is the truth of scripture. I know you know that. Your resurrection to spirit life is based on conditions. It is based on conditions. 
Or let me put it another way. It is based on God's judgment of how you lived in the flesh. So we, we have conditions. The truth, though, is that the conditions come before, not after a person moves from temporary flesh and blood to spirit. God's word also teaches, this is a very important point, and a lot of people get tripped up on this, God's word also teaches that there is nothing that you or I can do to make this happen. No, there is nothing you can do. Nothing you can do to make it an automatic outcome. Resurrection to eternal spirit life will be given to you or to me based solely on God's willingness to make it happen. Go to Romans 6, verse 23. Go to Scripture. Got to know. For the wages of sin, what you get from sin, is death. Non-life, non-being, non-existence. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's another way of saying that God's willingness to deal with us in mercy and forgiveness and goodwill, which is grace. And salvation from death is the gift that he gives based on his decisions, his judgments, his will, his mercy, his grace. Matthew 7, verse 14. I'm going to read verse 13, okay? I'm going to read verse 13 as well. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Another way, I think, in the Bible that it speaks of permanent death. Destruction. And many walk through that gate, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. There are those conditions again. <laughs> it also tells us that it's not an automatic transition. Because not everybody goes there. Not everybody gets eternal life, if you want to put it that way. It is a restricted path. So I mentioned terms and conditions. Terms and conditions. Let's talk about terms and conditions of salvation. What's good, good to know, is that God does tell you, he tells everybody, but he tells you the criteria that he uses to make his judgment upon your life. He tells you in advance. Here, it's like having an instructor, and you, I see this when my kids do their lectures online and I hear them um, on their computers, and, and, and the teacher will say, now, this is what's going to be on the test. <laughs> and that is like, students, write this down in your notes, make note, memorize this, it is going to be on the test. Well, in the same way, God tells you and me in advance the criteria that he uses to make his judgment on your life. And those terms and conditions are found in Scripture. Matthew 9, or sorry, Matthew 19. Matthew 19 and verse 16. The, the, uh, this is the rich young man who wants to know, how do I get there, Jesus? And in verse 16, just then a man came up to Jesus and he asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? So what do I have to do? And uh, 
Jesus says, well, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. And then he says this. Okay. If you want to enter life, eternal life, keep, keep the commandments. That's his answer to this guy. The terms and conditions of how God judges your life begins with the commandments. It doesn't end there, but it begins with the commandments. And how you respond to his commandments influences his willingness to give you the gift of life. Nothing's automatic. That's why I say his willingness to give you eternal life, which is a gift. That's salvation from death. Go back to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9. It says here, uh, And once made perfect, he, that being Jesus Christ, became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So here's another scripture, and there are more, but here's another scripture where eternal life is linked to conditions, obedience. Now, I want to just take a minute here, because this has come up a couple of times in the past few months not among you, but some other people that I, I talk to. Um, some like to argue that, that what we're talking about here is obedience to Christ. And that somehow, this obedience to Christ is different from obedience to the commandments. That's a very common argument out there, and I come across it quite a bit. It is a very deceptive argument. Very deceptive. And it roughly says... Uh, that Jesus nullified the Old Testament commandments of the Father and replaced them all with his own simple command to love one another. I know that's a very boiled down version of it, but that is a very common argument. You see, you hear it more now than ever. Um, but in his own words, and we've gone through this as well, Jesus adamantly stated that he did not come to do away with the law. Matthew 5, verse 19, of course, is, is the go-to scripture for that, although there are many more. But we went through this when I went through Jesus' teaching from the Old Testament. Jesus taught from the Old Testament scriptures, and he said of himself, I'm not bringing you people something new. Remember we went through that together? I'm not bringing some new thing of my own. I bring you the words of the Father who sent me. What Jesus basically says to people. Teaching that the Old Testament law is some harsh law from the stern father, whereas Jesus comes as the loving and forgiving brother, is completely false and totally bogus. Remember, again, this harkens back to what we've gone through together. Jesus was the rock who was with Israel as they went through the wilderness. And in the wilderness is where they received the commandments, is it not? He is the one who was with Israel in the wilderness, and he is the one who delivered the commandments to them in the first place. And he's the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow. Go with me to 1 John chapter 2. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. And whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. And this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Remember, Jesus was without sin. He said, I walked in my father's commandments. I have done it. 
Carrying on though, it says, dear friends, I'm John. I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message that you have heard. Yet I'm writing, yet I am writing you a new command. And its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. John says, look, the command to love is not a new command. It was always part of the Ten Commandments, the judgments, laws, statutes of God. From the very beginning. Now, I, you know, it must be granted, of course, that the New Testament writings do emphasize the motive of love more in a more pronounced way and draw it out our understanding of obedience to God. But it's really just an addition to what we learned in the Old Testament, which tends to focus more on the obedience, which is also necessary. But they're the same commands, not something that's new or alien to the old. And these commands, these understandings, these criteria are very important for us to know. So I know that might have come across as a complete sidebar, but it does play to the issue. Terms, conditions. What's God looking for? How is God evaluating you and me? We have the information, and it's the same information that's been there from the beginning. It's all about choices. We believe that God placed before Adam and Eve, and therefore all humanity, the choice of eternal life through obedience or death through disobedience. Humanity has chosen disobedience. Adam and Eve chose disobedience, and sin entered the world. And because of sin, all humanity has been cut off from God, cut off from the tree of life. Now, what, leaves, what that leaves us is now the only automatic outcome for flesh and blood human beings is a return back to lifeless molecules and atoms. That's the only inevitable thing about human life. Non-existence. But there is a way to set matters straight, set matters right, to be forgiven of sin and to receive the spirit of eternal life. John 3, verse 16, for our final scripture. God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but shall have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. The terms and conditions of that salvation are also clearly spelled out in God's own word. And through instruction, we come to a realization of what sin is, do we not? We become convicted of our need to repent from that sin, to change. We become baptized into the death of Christ. We receive the Holy Spirit, which is the down payment of eternal life. And then we spend our life overcoming and living under the judgment of God. And then we die in the flesh. And those who are in Christ at his return are raised to spirit-born life at that time. And at that point, we are raised to a state of glory. 
and are brought into the family of God as the bride of the Son. And we become partakers of the divine nature. 